From Homer to James Joyce, great minds across history have found inspiration in the tales of Ulysses. But do the famous ancient sites described in the Odyssey still captivate travelers today? Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear from Scott Hewler, who embarked on an odyssey of his own, six months retracing the footsteps of Ulysses all across the Mediterranean. So I did kind of get chills there. Just the moment I had given up finding anything, something chases you down and finds you. And, and I find in traveling, that's really, I think, the whole point of going someplace new. Scott will tell us about his journey, the surprises he discovered along the way, and how it felt to put himself in the sandals of that 3,000-year-old hero. And later in the hour, Lauren Sherman from Forbes magazine tells us the lengths some travelers are willing to go in order to visit some of the world's hardest-to-reach vacation destinations. When a vacation becomes an odyssey, up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Scott Hewler used to think that ancient Greek classics like Homer's The Odyssey were hard to get his head around. That was before he decided to actually travel the route Ulysses did around the eastern Mediterranean. Scott joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us just how his quest brought those dusty old tales to life. And later, we'll learn about intrepid travelers who go to the ends of the earth, literally, to reach some of the world's most inaccessible vacation destinations. Scott, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, Rick. Thanks for having me. Boy, as a traveler, I'm just fascinated by the ultimate odyssey. What, what came first, the word odyssey, or does our idea of an epic journey come out of this book? Right. Our idea of the epic journey comes out of this book, and it's called the Odyssey because it is the travels of Odysseus, which is the Greek name of Ulysses, which is a Romanization, and his story is called the Odyssey. He had a long story to tell. Now, apparently, you had a struggle sinking your teeth or getting your brain around this whole epic bit of ancient literature, and I would imagine a few of our listeners have not actually read or um, <laughs> understood the Odyssey. Give us a, a quick primer before we get off on our discussion uh, about Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, so we can understand you know, the, the basic uh, ground rules here. Well, the Odyssey and the Iliad are, of course, the two great epic poems written by Homer, which are basically the foundation stones of Western literature. And the Iliad is, many people say, that was Homer's young poem. It's about the, the ninth year of the Trojan War, and it's about Achilles, this uh, angry, arrogant young man who's all about fighting and honor and so forth and, and troubles among the Greeks mostly, and then, of course, between the Greeks and the Trojans. And then the Odyssey, people say it's the poem Homer wrote as a much older man, and people will call the Iliad the first story in Western literature and the Odyssey the first novel because it's really about character. It's about poor Odysseus trying to make his way home from Troy. The war was 10 years, and it took Odysseus 10 years to get home from Troy and make his way back to his Greek island of Ithaca and his kingdom there, and then he had to fight his way back into the good graces of his wife and his family. And, of course, on the way home, he runs into the Cyclops and the Sirens and uh, the Lotus Eaters and all of these people who we've heard of, at least vaguely, though a lot of us, including me when I got started here, don't really know what those people are. His family put out the yellow ribbons, and they were kind of 20 years old by the time he got back. Right. When Odysseus leaves for the Trojan War, of course, in the first place, he doesn't want to go, which, which people don't really know. He's kind of a draft dodger. He's trying to get out of the war, and they drag him off to the war. He leaves behind his wife and his infant son, his infant son Telemachus. And for 20 years, Odysseus yearns to return to his wife and his son. And then finally, at the end of the Odyssey, he does get to meet his son, and his son is all grown up. And one of the things that we always associate with Odysseus is that though he had these wonderful adventures, he missed the home life. He missed the entire youth of his son. And so in order to have these great adventures, you have to give something to get something. So there's a lot of metaphors and a lot of teaching in this ancient literature. Well, that was my idea when I left home. Was that, That's what I was looking for, is that I kept wondering, why are we telling each other these stories over and over, whether it's Oh Brother, Where Out Thou, or James Joyce's Ulysses, or Steely Dan singing Home at Last. We're constantly retelling each other the, the stories from the Odyssey. And I thought, well, why on earth do we constantly do that? Maybe I ought to go and take a look for what's out there that fascinates us so much. And I took a page from the 
the Joycians, the people who focus so strongly on Ulysses, Joyce's modern retelling of, of the Odyssey, and they go every year on Bloomsday on June 16th to Dublin, and they sort of slavishly retrace the steps of Leopold Bloom, the hero of that book, the Odyssey character. And I thought, well, you don't hear much about people going to Troy and then making their way back to Ithaca. That sounds kind of dumb. Maybe I ought to do that. And before I knew it, I was making international flight reservations and showing up in Troy and wondering what I was supposed to do next. So you spent six months retracing this journey that uh, Odysseus spent 10 years trying to make from Troy back to his home in Ithaca, right? Yes, that's right, although it's it's worth pointing out that Odysseus spent eight of those 10 years uh, hanging around in sleeping with goddesses. So it's... Mm, uh, the plot thickens. You're right. It wasn't quite as much adventure. <laughs> and, and some of that adventure, that's that's not such tough work. And uh, I wouldn't have minded some of that. It was a lot of joke making among my friends. I was meant to say to my pregnant wife, okay, dear, I'll be home in a few months. Uh, probably, unless I'm, you know, uh, ensnared by some goddess. Oh, I'm sure your wife would be very understanding about that as far as your call of duty as a writer. Right. She wanted me to get the best story. So if, oh, if good. it required some goddess servicing, I was enabled to do so. But when you got home, Scott, I would imagine your wife recognized you. And, and when Odysseus got home, he had gone through all of these challenges and temptations and struggles. And then he got home, but he wasn't really home yet, right? Because his wife didn't recognize him and he had to prove that he was indeed her long lost husband. Right. Well, not only was he 20 years older, but he was also in disguise because um, Athena, the goddess, his patron, helps him to sort of sneak around the house for a while and, and see what's going on. His wife, in fact, Penelope, has been under siege from these suitors over the past several years who have wanted her to choose one of them as a second husband because they've given up on Odysseus and they think he's never coming mm. home. And she's been resisting famously faithful Penelope. So Odysseus, he eventually has to kill all of these suitors. He kills more than 100 of them to sort of reclaim his honor and his kingdom. And as I point out in the book, when I got back, I didn't have to kill any suitors, but my house was full of contractors and my only weapon was a checkbook. So I'm still <laughs> not sure who had it tougher. Um, I have the me. same thing when I come home after two or three months on the road. There's those kind of, uh, hey, I'm home now. Where's the checkbook? And uh, things have gone on without me. And it's sometime a little bit of an adjustment. Well, and as you say, there is that metaphor there that if you're going to be gone, when you come back, everybody isn't just going to be sitting and waiting for you and yeah. cheering on your return. And even if they are, then there's a lot of work on everybody's part to say, okay, how are we going to fit back in together? How are we going to be a family again? Everybody's different than when you left. You, me, the baby, everybody's different now. I'm speaking with Scott Hewler, and Scott's just written a new book called No Man's Lands. And this is One Man's Odyssey Through The Odyssey. You must have stumbled into a lot of ideas that work their way into our everyday way of thinking and speaking that you probably didn't even realize where they came from. Famously faithful Penelope, for instance. Oh, absolutely. My most favorite one, uh, when I started reading The Odyssey, I wondered about this, was we talk about sort of being in a dilemma. We talk about being between Scylla and Charybdis. And of course, Scylla mm. is this sea monster, this dragon that has six mouths. And if Odysseus sails his ship by Scylla, she will eat six of his sailors. That's a given. There's a guarantee of that. Whereas on the other side of this very narrow strait, there's a whirlpool, and that's Charybdis. Odysseus can take his chance sailing by the whirlpool, but if the whirlpool pulls down the ship, everybody is lost. And so that's this very, very difficult choice. And Odysseus chooses the sea monster, and, and she does eat six of his sailors, and it breaks Odysseus's heart to see this happen. But he knows he's made the right move, although later on, a couple stops ahead, he ends up in a shipwreck, and the piece of ship that he's clutching onto for dear life ends up being washed into the whirlpool anyway. And I thought to myself, my gosh, is this a metaphor for modern life, for, for the choices of adulthood, where you have these terrible choices and there's no really easy answer and there's no good answer, and you grit your teeth and you make a very difficult choice, and then you end up having to do the other thing <laughs> anyway? Yeah. So I, it's a sort of wonderful metaphor. And then, since 500 BC anyway, the Strait of Messina between the toe of the boot of Italy and the island of Sicily has been associated with that strait, with the strait between Scylla and Charybdis. And so when I went there and I actually, I ended up uh, 
paddling a kayak out there into that strait so that I could look to my left and see the cliff of Scylla and look to my right and see where they claimed the whirlpool of Charybdis was and sort of hold up my paddle above my head and say, woohoo, I've done it. I've sailed <laughs> between Scylla and Charybdis and I'll live and tell the tale. It was really quite thrilling in a way to say, well, here I am, even if even if it's a, a fairy story, which of course it is, and even if it's just a metaphor made flesh, there's something satisfying about taking a metaphor and making it flesh. Well, that's what I love about your book. As you read it, you're right there with you. You went to the cave of the Cyclops, for instance, and I can just picture this in, in Sicily, right? And you're sitting there and rereading the chapter from Ulysses in the cave of the Cyclops, kind of imagining, is it really here? Was it like this? It must have been a, a powerful experience for you to try to go back 3,000 years. Right. Powerful in many ways. On the one hand, there was that sense of walking in history. When I was in Troy, for example, it was just overpowering. The Lonely Planet Guide, for example, sort of makes fun of Troy. It's just a bunch of old rocks and this stupid-looking horse. And my sense is, what else would you want out of Troy other than the ruins of the city and a Trojan horse you could go into and have your picture made? I was thrilled to be at Troy and feel the history just radiating out of the rocks. But see, that's like, wow. your advantage. I, I went to Troy, Scott, and I got to say I had the same reaction as the Lonely Planet writer. I just thought it was a pile of rubble and a modern wooden horse that people can go through like a big toy. But if you have read the Odyssey and if you can uh, you know, put yourself in the sandals of those people, man, it becomes much more than a pile of rocks, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And especially Troy, which has so many other stories to tell. Uh, one of the books I read called Troy, The Ruin of a Ruin. Because, as you know, Heinrich Schliemann sort of invented mm. modern archaeology on Troy, but but he did a pretty bad job of it. The first thing, he showed up in this, this precious, this irreplaceable archaeological site, and he dug a huge trench. He had locals dig this vast trench to get to the bottom and threw everything they dug just into this great big pile, totally clouding everybody's vision of exactly what belonged on top of what and how things worked and how things shouldn't have worked and what came before what. You know, it's a, it's wonderful that he found Troy, but he kind of wrecked it as he excavated it. Scott, you went to a lot of places on this modern odyssey of yours. I'm curious what your take was on Malta. I loved Malta because it's so well associated with Calypso, the enchantress who supposedly lived there. There was actually, if you look at your tourist map of the little island of Gozo, part of the Maltese archipelago, it shows Calypso's cave on the map. And it was so satisfying because I was going place after place telling people, well, I'm looking for Odysseus. And they would look at me like I was from Venus. It was so nice to just be able to say, okay, here's where I'm going and know I was at the right place. I just loved them, the Maltese islands. I loved everything about them and especially the people there. I had a conversation with someone who said, you know, we were talking and talking and I wanted to talk about Odysseus and he wanted to hear about my wife. And we ended up talking about what he wanted. And I said, well, why is this? And he said, you know, we live on a little tiny island. We wait for people like you, somebody who comes to our little 300,000-person island, forget trying to control the conversation. We're the ones who are starving for news. So I loved that about Malta. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're on an odyssey with a man who has retraced the ancient odyssey in modern times and written a book about it. Scott Hewler's with us, and he's written No Man's Lands.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking with Scott Hewler. Scott's written a new book called No Man's Lands about his modern-day retracing of the route that Odysseus followed in that original Odyssey 3,000 years ago. Scott, from a traveler's point of view, just kind of lay out what was the route that Odysseus followed and that you followed uh, in your six-month retracing of his famous epic journey. Well, of course, people have been discussing since there was an Odyssey where Odysseus went. And of course, people have thought about whether there even was an Odysseus and whether it's just a story. But there has, over the centuries, over the millennia, emerged a sort of consensus that, first of all, we do know where Troy was. We're quite certain where that was. And the land of the Cyconis, his first stop, is in Thrace in northeastern Greece. Those places are actually on the map. And Ithaca, the island to which he returns, is on the map as well. Everything beyond that, you know, it's like finding the real munchkin land or the uh-huh. real wonderland for Alice. Where is Ithaca actually? Ithaca is in western Greece, just off western Greece, okay. and it's a beautiful, rocky little island. Sort of, if you sail from Italy to the Peloponnesian Peninsula, you'll pass Ithaca. That's exactly right. It's south of Corfu. So our traveling listeners can follow us here. So Troy is like a six-hour bus ride south of Istanbul on the west coast of Turkey. And then uh, Thrace is the area, the sort of the European mainland of Turkey, and then the northeastern part of Greece. And then uh, the Odyssey goes down around Athens, Mycenae, Sparta, uh, around the Peloponnesian Peninsula, over to Sicily, Sardinia, along the west coast of Italy, Naples, uh, Sorrento, I think we'll talk about that in a minute, but it even the word Sorrento comes from, uh, I think, a reference to the Odyssey. A little bit in Malta, in North Africa, and then ultimately back to home in Ithaca, which is near Corfu, which is what most people know, the island on the west of Greece, not in the Aegean Sea, but uh, on the Italian side of the Greece mainland. Is that is that about right there, Scott? Yeah, that's exactly right. You've hit just about everything, everywhere that I went. Did you actually find places that really took you back? I mean, you must have sat in boats, in caves, uh, on mountaintops, and tried to kind of go... Like when I went to the middle of the pyramid, I was supposed to feel something really special. And I went there and I kind of go, okay, where's the special? You know, uh, did you have the special in your travels? Now and then, uh, as I said, I really felt that at Troy and I felt it very strongly at Odysseus's Ithaca home. But mostly I felt just the opposite. You were mentioning the Cyclops cave when I found this beautiful cave on the end of Cyclops Street in western Sicily. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, okay, now what? And I'm thinking, Hewler, you dope. (laughs) You're sitting here in a cave full of goat poop, you know, and your wife is 5,000 miles away (laughs) gestating. What on (laughs) earth are you doing? But then, you know, one of the things about the Cyclops incident in the Odyssey is the cave is full of goats because the Cyclops herds goats. And so I'm sitting there, I'm sort of lost in this reverie of self-recrimination. Hewler, you're such a fool. You've spent all this money and you're dragging your sorry butt all over the Mediterranean, getting yourself into trouble. And what wakes me out of it is a, a noise with which you'll be familiar, that that noise of those wooden goat bells. The sheep and goats are always wearing those wooden bells around the Mediterranean and that sort of dung, dung, dung. Mm-hmm. that you hear almost everywhere when you're outside of one of the major cities. And suddenly I thought, well, gosh, actually, there's goats and sheep here just like Odysseus would have found if Odysseus were real. And that's why I came here was to sort of immerse myself in this kind of Mediterranean feeling and to kind of drive a stake in the ground and say, here I am. What does this place want to tell me? And so I did kind of get chills there. Just the moment I had given up finding anything, something chases you down and finds you. And and I find in traveling, that's usually the case. When you let go of what you're trying to find, then something will come and find you at a new place. And that's really, I think, the whole point of going someplace new. And, and Scott, you got to take the time and be open to that. I, I just think that really distinguishes a travel experience. I can think of, as you were talking about the, the wooden goat bells, you know, I went to Assisi, sort of on a pilgrims for St. Francis, and you're surrounded by all these crass tourists just looking for your little monk coffee mugs, you know. And uh, then I hiked up to the ruined castle on the hill and I had a picnic and I was surrounded by birds. And it occurred to me, that's the same beautiful bird call that inspired St. Francis to appreciate God's great creation. Or I was in Turkey and went to a village and the little boy was playing an eagle bone flute. 
carved out of an eagle bone. And his dad was playing an eagle bone flute up in the hills as he tended his flocks. And I thought, man, there is a, a little timeless thread connecting the 21st century with centuries before Christ. If we're sensitive in our travels, I think we can stumble onto those kind of little magic moments that take us back. Oh, I, I agree completely. And not only take you back, but just take you someplace you weren't expecting to go. One of the things that I will never forget in my life is waking up in Turkey, in Chinakali, which is near Troy, especially, or also in Kishan, a little tiny town where I found myself because I didn't know how to get out of it, as mm -hmm. often happens when you're traveling, and waking up to hear the sound of the call to prayer. The, the Muslim call to prayer, which is absolutely haunting and just spectacularly beautiful. And it's just like a teletype across your forehead. Mm. You are not at home. <laughs> you are somewhere different. This is an away game for you. you <laughs> an know. away game. That's great. Stand tall. Keep your chin up. And that was just wonderful. And certainly there were no Muslims when Odysseus was traveling. And yet... The point was to feel far from home, to feel somewhere else, to be transported out of my mundane, boring, middle-aged life. And so those were the moments where something really wonderful happened. Boy, for you to choose the words spectacularly beautiful for the Muslim call to prayer indicates to me you're reveling and celebrating in the fact that you have moved yourself far away from home. Absolutely. And that's the whole point, really, as far as the Odyssey goes. You know, each place I went, I tried to find something that I could do so I could, like, check it off my list, quite literally, that I kept inside my copy of the Odyssey. And finding some place to go for the goddess, the witch Circe, was really caused me a lot of trouble. And I spent about a week dithering around the coast of Italy just south of Rome. And I complained and, and whined and was miserable for a week. And it was only in, after that was done that I looked back and I thought, this was probably the most Odyssean moment of my journey because what's Odysseus but a man who's lost and trying to figure out where to go and doesn't know where to go next. And this was this moment where I was truly lost, trying to find out where to go and didn't know where to go next. And so that I did eventually find a statue of Circe that made me feel very satisfied in a place that made sense, that was great. But it was the moment of being lost and of being open to, now I just don't know what to do. Somebody please help me. Mm -hmm. in, in many ways, that's what I went looking for. Now, talking about the uh, disappointments of going to a place that's got a big name and, and not finding anything except maybe a road called the Via di Cyclops, you went to Sparta. I found Sparta was like a famous name for people who like ancient military history, but a horrible little town, nothing to see. What was your take? Well, I agree with that completely, and I can't remember the Greek historian who said that if people came later on and they would hear the great name Sparta, but they would never believe it because there would be no ruins there. And the king said something to the effect that a city is guarded by men, not buildings. And so he was like, our pride is the Spartans, yeah. not the buildings that we're leaving up. Well, that's putting a positive spin on it. I'd say a militaristic society <laughs> doesn't leave anything except, <laughs> except a few war stories. I think you may be right about that, too. That was sort of the ancient boot camp compared to Athens. Hey, you went to a place that is just really evocative to me. The little islands off of Sicily, just north of Sicily, they're volcanic islands, right? The Lipari Islands, you went to Vulcano? Yes, I did. I had a wonderful time there. I had wonderful help there. I chose it as the island of Aeolus, uh, the wind king who helps Odysseus on his way. I found when I took a walk around the top of the Grand Crater there where they have all of those fumaroles and so this sort of hissing air escaping from the top of this volcano was a wonderful expression. You could see why people thought that's where the winds lived because it's like down underneath there, that's where the winds come out of somehow. And it was a wonderful walk around the top of that sear, burned crater. Well, that's an evocative place to be. And speaking of evocative places, you wrote a lot about the Capuchin Crypt of course, the Capuchin monks are from the relatively modern era, and they are just famous for hanging their dead brothers up to dry down in the basement. How did that relate to your, your odyssey? Well, um, Circe sends Odysseus down to the underworld, to the land of the dead, to get some information from a seer down there. He needs some help getting home, and the seer has information that he needs. And when I was looking for all these places, you're kind of stretching it when you're going and saying, this place is the Cyclops Cave, this place is Scylla and Charybdis. If you tell your friends you're going to the land of the dead and you come back, you're obviously making it up because that's a one-way trip from what I know. So I just chose to go to the crypt there because I had been there before and I knew it was beautiful and I really wanted to see again 
those signs that those monks, as you know, there's there's full skeletons of monks there wearing those brown robes holding signs, as you are now, we once were, as we are now, you soon will be. And that struck me as great straightforward communication from those who have passed over to the other side or saying like, remember, everybody dies, including you yourself, and you better be thinking about that. And in many ways, that's what Odysseus learns when he goes to the land of the dead too. Boy, that's a timeless truth, and that's something to learn uh, vividly in your travels. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are retracing the route of the ancient Odyssey, the original Odyssey. And we're talking with Scott Hewler, who just spent six months doing that as he worked on a new book called No Man's Lands. Now, in your book, I think you refer to the Odyssey as a a guidebook for middle-aged men. What did you mean by that? Well, I I thought of it almost as, remember those AAA triptychs that you can get that like you slide over a page and it tells you where there's construction on the highway? I just felt like, here's Odysseus. At the time of the action of the Odyssey, he's about 45 years old. He's been dragged off to this stupid war, which he knew was a dumb war. He didn't want anything to do for it. He's been working for this lousy boss, Agamemnon, who takes all the credit when anything goes good and usually causes the problems when they show up. He's missing his wife. And talk about a commute home. It takes him 10 years to get home. (laughs) That sounds like the daddy track to me, you know? And I was just like, what's this about? And then all of these metaphors come up. As I say, here's the Cyclops. Well, who hasn't been threatened by a man-eating bully or corporation or a job that just won't let you go? And Scylla and Charybdis, here's this very difficult choice you have to make. And Mm -hmm. then you mentioned Sorrento. That comes from the sirens. Tell that story with the wax in the ears and the last to the mast and so on. Right. Uh, Odysseus needs to sail past the sirens, and the sirens are famous for their song, which lures unwary sailors to the rocks and and, and kills them. What they offer, the sirens, we think of them as mermaids and these sort of sexy female creatures. In Homer's time, we would not have thought of that. They were just dangerous, and they offered him information. They said, we know all the answers. We know what you want to know. Come stay with us. And so Odysseus knew that he wanted to hear their song, but he also knew that he wouldn't be able to resist it. So he had himself tied to the mast of his ship, and he had his crew stop their ears with wax so that the crew could not hear the song of the sirens, and they kept rowing. And Odysseus could hear it, but he couldn't do anything. He couldn't get himself into trouble. So it's this beautiful story of finding the self-control, finding the self-control to resist what's dangerous to you, but coming as close as you need to to satisfy yourself without finding too much danger. And so that's a beautiful <laughs> story too. And, uh, and and I just love that one. Today, the town of Sorrento is, I think, named from those sirens. Absolutely. And there's three little islands that used to be called the Sirenus, but are now called the Ligales, that are traditionally called the islands that the, the sirens turned into uh, when they were enraged by Odysseus making his way past them. Now, there's lots of sex in the Odyssey, but it's not Odysseus looking for adventures. It's goddesses trying to seduce him, right? Right. That's this wonderful thing. When he gets to Circe's island, uh, Circe is a witch and she turns his men into pigs and then goes to kill Odysseus, but with the help of the god Hermes, Odysseus resists her, and so she turns his men back into even younger, healthier versions of themselves. I keep thinking, wow, you talk about the healing powers of mud, right? (laughs) And um, then he spends a year sleeping with her, and and in fact, Odysseus is so happy there that it's his men who kind of have to sort of sneak up to him, pointing at their watches and saying, you know, if we're going to get home, it's about time to go. Time to go home. Aren't you on a, <laughs> aren't you on an odyssey to try to get home, Ulysses? Right. You know, Scott, you were following a pretty scant trail in trying to retrace an epic journey that really nobody even knows exactly how it happened. And it must have been really important for you not to get too hung up on, on actual physical artifacts. How did you deal with that? Because I think it could probably get you down if you weren't careful. It could, and it did when I was trying to plan my journey, and I had the guidance of a wonderful classics professor who finally said to me, remember, this is a beautiful poem and a beautiful piece of literature, and not the geography, but the story itself guides you. He said, finally, you're looking for what the story has to share with you, not some particular treetop or some particular hill in Sparta, which, as we've discussed, so commonly makes you feel like, what am I doing here? But if you just let go and think, I'm here because I'm making a journey and there's value in making a journey and returning home, then you you just let the story be your guide rather than some particular map. Suddenly, 
you find the beauty in your every moment that way. That must have been a godsend to get that wisdom, and apparently it, it played out as valuable advice for you in your travels. Yeah. Oh, it made all the difference to me. It, it absolutely did. And I think other people can learn from that also when they are going to these ancient sites. Let your imagination off the leash and see how you can um, actually put yourself back in time. Scott, let's wrap things up with you just taking us back 3,000 years to one spot that really let you and potentially us, if we go there, stand in the sandals of Odysseus. I would tell you, I think, about the Isle of Jerba in Tunisia, where people wonder whether the lotus eaters who just wanted to lay around all day were taking drugs or something like that. My feeling was that really what Odysseus is telling you there is that you don't want to be at a resort. Resort travel is no fun. I ended up staying at, at a sort of club med style place, and I was just like, this is no fun. I'm just with a bunch of upscale travelers complaining about things. And I ended up renting a scooter and riding around Jerba, which is basically a desert island, past the date trees and the palms and the olive trees, all through these little tiny roads covered with sand. And I just felt like it could have been 5,000 years ago. Berber women would come out wrapped in their robes to pump gas for you. And you just felt like you're far away. This is someplace I've never been and never would have thought to go had I not come chasing Odysseus. And I hope that I was finding the same thing he did, which is that you don't want to just lay around and forget where you're going. It's good to have someplace to go, and it's, it's good to keep moving and keep your eyes open. And Ulysses finally made it home. He finally convinced his wife it was him. How was your homecoming? Well, it was pretty exciting because when I came home, you know, I had left a wife who was pregnant, but kind of just getting started. And here was, you know, somebody demonstrably with a prize inside. You know, she had passed the sort of swallowed a basketball stage. And very soon she had her baby, our baby. And suddenly I was having an adventure that Odysseus never had, which is I was raising a little boy. And nothing is more, the, the, the lesson of any journey really is that how good it is to be home. I'm doing what Odysseus never got the chance to do. I'm helping to raise this little boy and help to guide him on his journeys. And we'll go on our odyssey together, me and, and my wife and, and our little boy. I tell people sometimes when I put him to bed, we use as a nightlight, we use a little globe, a, a globe with a, with a light inside of it. Think of that wonderful metaphor that I've had my journeys all over the globe and now it's his turn and we gave him this globe and it's like, it's your turn now. It's your journey is next. And, and I'm so glad to be home to help you get started on it. Scott Hewler, author of No Man's Lands, One Man's Odyssey Through the Odyssey. Scott, you're sort of a modern day Odysseus and, and thanks a lot for the inspiration. Oh, Rick, it's been so nice being here. Thanks for having me. Meet pleasures and castles, Next, we'll hear where some other intrepid travelers are going to find meaningful experiences in some of the farthest places from home sweet home. And we'll share your favorite off-the-beaten-path adventures at 877-333-7425. That's 877-333-RICK. It's travel with Rick Steves. Με λένε Πένι, είμαι από τους Δελφούς και ταξιδεύω με τον Rick Steves. That was Greek. I'm Penny from Delphi, Greece, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Με λένε Πένι, είμαι από τους Δελφούς και ταξιδεύω με τον Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, this is Travel with Rick Steves, and now we're joined by Lauren Sherman, who's a lifestyle reporter at Forbes.com, Forbes magazine. And Lauren recently wrote an article called World's Hardest to Reach Vacations. Lauren, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. World's Hardest to Reach Vacations. Is that a new um, segment in the tourist industry or the travel industry? You know, the last couple of years it's gotten quite popular as baby boomers age and, and they have more time to spend. They're traveling farther than the typical spots, Mexico, Europe. They want a really authentic experience and going to the far ends of the earth kind of gives that to you. Now, is this like extreme adventure travel where you got to be uh, wild and rough and ready to bungee jump? Or is this more like rich people looking through telescopes at, at fancy wildlife? It's kind of a combination of both. 
For many of the trips, you have to have quite a bit of money and you also have to be physically fit. But there are other trips that are a little bit less money and people are guiding you so you don't need a ton of experience. And quite often there's a lot of insurance going into this so you're taken care of, essentially. A lot of insurance meaning a lot of risk? There's a bit of risk in some of them. Um, Abercrombie and Kent just started a new program called Extreme Adventures, and every single person that goes on one of these adventures is insured up to $300,000. Now, they haven't had to use that insurance as of yet, and most of the programs do not need that hefty of an insurance plan, but they have it just in case. So it's kind of just ensuring your safety, making people more comfortable when you are traveling in places where not many people have gone before. And it's probably also making it possible for big companies to take people to dangerous places without endangering their own financial health because the insurance covers them from liability. Is that right? Exactly. That's very true. Now, let's just get right into some of these places. You did this research. Um, when you think about world's hardest-to-reach vacations, what are some um, marquee uh, destinations here that would represent this industry? The place that I found the most fascinating was the South Pole. Now, people travel very, very close to the South Pole quite often, but to actually go there, it's quite a bit of money and it takes a lot of time. That was the one when I was researching the story that I found most fascinating. You can't just fly in or take a—you have to actually hike in? You know, you have to actually hike in. You have to take a couple of planes. First, you start in Chile. Once you fly into Chile, then you fly to Patriot Hills, Antarctica. You spend two days adjusting to the climate and also learning how to survive in the landscape. You are guided by experts that have done this several times. One of the gentlemen's names is Jeff Summers, and he's completed 1,600 miles of snow and ice travel and he's been to the South Pole quite a bit. So Mr. Summers will tell you exactly how to deal if you come across a particularly treacherous path, and then it's on to the mountains where you are 89 degrees latitude. Then there's a 69-mile trek to the South Pole on cross-country skis. And the trip altogether takes about 18 days, but then you also need about a week before and after to cushion, you know, different things that could happen in terms of delayed flights or simply maybe someone getting sick. There's all these different variables that you need to take into consideration. So you need quite a bit of time to do this trip. It's worthwhile, but it will also cost you. It does cost $42,000 through Abercrombie and Kent. 42000 to go to the South Pole. Yes. Wow. Yes. So you need money and you need time. I mean, the world's hardest to reach exactly. vacations, probably almost by definition, it's going to take time to get there. If you're a high-powered person who can get a three-day weekend, I doubt if there's too many of these places that are accessible. Exactly. And that's, that's the thing. It doesn't matter even if you have a private jet that can take you to most places in the world. If you don't have the time to take to go to these very, very far-off places that you can't get to by simply one flight, then you're not going to be able to do this. It's a combination of time, money, and the sense of adventure. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Lauren Sherman, who's a lifestyle reporter at Forbes magazine, and she's written an article called The World's Hardest to Reach Vacations. Now, a lot of people think of mountains, Lauren, when they're thinking about hardest to reach vacations, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, climbing Mount McKinley, of course, climbing Mount Everest. Uh, what are the mm -hmm. biggies in, in, in people's targets when they're thinking about uh, a person who's not really a professional mountain climber that just wants to have one of these uh, hardest-to-reach vacation thrills, what, what mountains come to mind? Kilimanjaro is one that is a bit expensive. It's a little over $5,000. But you can go with a licensed guide who has done this almost 200 times. It's an eight-day trek that takes you up from the Lamosho Glades to the Uhuru Peak. It's, it's tough, but if you go through a luxury company or even just any adventure travel company, you'll have boarding before and after, so you'll have a nice meal. It'll be comfortable. The difficult part is climbing up the mountain, and you do need to have some level of physical fitness. But it's possible for you or I to do one of these treks. 
You hear about people, they've got adventure in their mind and they want to get some fancy photographs and some stories to tell, but they get Mm -hmm. over their head. You hear about untrained climbers up on Mount Everest causing all sorts of chaos and actually people dying. Uh, Are there Mm -hmm. examples of thrill seekers going too far in this this sort of world's hard-to-reach vacations industry? You know, the experts that I spoke with in the industry itself, it's really not about independent travel. It's about going with a tour guide who knows what they're doing. So it is adventurous, but at the same time, you're being smart and safe. I think that anyone that I spoke to would say that it's very, very important to take every precaution that you can because it's rewarding, it's enriching, but if you can't live to see the end of it, it's probably not worth it. So we focused on groups that are making these impossible travels possible for everybody. So when you're really pushing the limits here, you're talking not wandering off on your own and, and getting over your head, but but trusting a professional guide who's done this and uh, is acting responsibly. I know in Switzerland there was a whole rash of uh, horrible deaths in their adventure sports industry, and, and they all kind of stepped back and realized if we're going to do this, we're going to have to do it without the uh, gung-ho-ness and, and with more of a sober, conservative sort of approach so we respect nature and, and our customers aren't dying on us. Exactly, because nature is a huge part of that. If people go in, first of all, they're endangering themselves. If they don't understand the land, they don't understand what they're dealing with, then they can also damage everything around them. It's a bad scene all around, yeah. I'm speaking with Lauren Sherman from Forbes magazine. She's written an article called World's Hardest to Reach Vacations. we got Sherry on the line in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Hi, Sherry. Thanks for your call. Uh, nice to talk to you. Yeah, I've got a question for Lauren. I have a, a place that we discovered off the coast of uh, northern Scotland in the Orkney Islands, and mm. um, it isn't that difficult, nothing like going to Antarctica, but you take a ferry across to mainland Orkney, and on that island is a prehistoric site that dates back 5,000 years. It's a semi-subterranean city that was discovered when a wild storm blew off the sea and uncovered a sand dune. It's just an amazing sight because they had rooms and furniture, uh, cabinets, stone doors that open and close, and uh, the roofs were probably sod because they don't exist anymore. But it is one of the most fascinating prehistoric sites that I've ever had the chance to visit. So that's called Scarabray? Yes, Scarabray. In addition, on the island of Orkney, there are quite a few Norse sites and other prehistoric burial mounds, um, stone circles. It's a fascinating area to visit. Now, Sherry, when you get as far as the north end of Scotland, you feel like you're off the beaten path, and then you go one big step further, getting on a boat to go out to the Orkney Islands. Did you feel like you were like uh, one step beyond the crowds? <laughs> yes, I think so. Although Kirkwall is a lovely little kind of English city there, but once you get away from that, it's quite isolated. And we were there in July, and it's still quite cold. It's surprising to me that prehistoric people would have picked such a a wild and uh, cold environment, but, but they did. You know, I just thought of something. You can go a long way to get way off the beaten path but still be in Kirkwall or still be at the Mm -hmm. tourist shop at Machu Picchu or something like this. And it's important when you do get to that destination you've spent so much time and money to get to that you make a point to cross the finish line, to get away from the people, to sit and meditate and marvel at where you are and and be alone. Did you have a chance to do that, Oh, we did. And we stayed in isolated bed and breakfast locations. I mean, you know, we ate dinner there because, of course, it was miles and miles to the nearest restaurant. That was fun, too. And Scarabray itself, I don't think there were more than four or five of us there, you know, at any one time. So you feel like you're discovering something that that many people don't have the opportunity to see. And yet I think it's well worth making the effort. Mm. I had just read about Scarabray and was determined that when we went, we would, we would get to that island. Wow. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for sharing that. 
Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. I'm speaking with Lauren Sherman. We're talking about world's hardest-to-reach vacations. I just read uh, Badlands by Tony Wheeler, and he talks about going to a lot of the most remote places in kind of politically troubled areas. And he traveled mm-hmm. like an entire day just to get to this lone ancient pillar in the middle of Afghanistan. And to be there all alone with that was, was just stirring to hear him talk about that. I was in mm-hmm. Iranic and went to Persepolis, which is, I think, the greatest ancient site between the Holy Land and India. And you feel like you're away from, from the mainstream, and it's, it's really quite remarkable. Lauren, when you hear Sherry talk about a place like that, that's a different kind of hard-to-reach vacation. Did you deal with any of these kind of places, or were most of yours just a physically you know, thin altitude or, or very cold or something like this? When I'm researching travel stories, I do come across isolated places. But in this story, we did try to focus on places that were physically difficult to get to and challenging once you did get to them. Now, you talked about going actually beyond Timbuktu, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. That is a very, very interesting festival. It's um 40 miles north of Timbuktu in Mali, and it is called Festival O Desert, and it happens each January. It's an an older festival that's been resurrected in the last eight years or so, and it's actually becoming quite popular with the Western world. More and more musicians are going there. Some famous musicians have gone in the past. Basically, what it is is thousands of nomads, I think it it was 6,000 nomads in 2008 went to the festival in January. They travel as far as 3,000 miles by camel Hmm. to reach this city 40 miles north of Timbuktu. And the festival features traditional nomadic song, dance, poetry, that type of thing. But the best way to get there is you have to first travel to Europe, and then you have to travel to Timbuktu in Mali. Then you have to go 40 miles north of Timbuktu. You're finally there. It doesn't cost as much as the rest of these trips. Um, It's about $1,000 for the festival itself. Airfare is what is so pricey. It it can cost upward of $2,000. But it's an interesting experience. It's different from most of these because it's also a cultural experience. I got to say, you couldn't rest in a fancy hotel and watch it from the balcony. You're right there in the middle of it. Certainly not. They sell VIP packages, but that is VIP in tents or very small hotels. You're definitely in Africa. You're not in a developed city. You're in the middle of the desert and enjoying this tribal ritual music. For the people that go, I believe it's a very fulfilling experience in terms of, you know, physically getting to a difficult-to-reach destination, but also in terms of cultural enrichment. Oh, I can imagine. I was in, just so people are, we're talking about uh, Saharan Africa here, south of Morocco. I went to the most remote place I've been in Morocco, stood there looking Mm -hmm. out at the dunes of the Sahara, and my guide said, this is the last stop before Timbuktu which was apparently on the other side of the camel run across the oh, desert. Wow, yes. And then I thought, I felt so remote. And then I thought, wow, on the other side of the desert is Timbuktu. And you're talking about mm-hmm. going using Timbuktu as a springboard to get to this festival. Reminds me of a experience I had in Papua New Guinea where we had this big gathering of the tribes people. And there was probably 300 tourists there. And there must have been 5,000 locals celebrating. And when you can find these incredibly vibrant cultural festivals where local people travel Mm -hmm. days on their donkeys or camels or whatever to get to, you've really found yourself in a beautiful and and a precious little corner of uh, a remote culture. And we have Kurt Kutai on the line uh, from Lake Forest Park, Washington. Uh, Kurt, thanks for your call. Yes, I'm glad to be here. Any thoughts on uh, on these hard-to-reach vacations? Well, the one place that always comes to mind, one of my favorite places to go to the world, in part because it is really hard and very adventurous to get to, uh, Manu National Park in the Amazon of Peru. And why is that worth the trouble? Oh, it's just it's one of the most biologically diverse rainforests on Earth. The, the biosphere reserve actually encompasses cloud forest habitat high up in the Andes, uh, all the way down the eastern slopes of the Andes into the Amazon. And it's not like far out in the lowlands of the Amazon basin, which most people think of as that hot, humid, mosquito-infested kind of place. But in fact, here we are more in the foothills of the Andes, where 
it's cooler. And there's even a, what they call a friaja, a cool breeze that comes up from the southerly poles that actually reaches as far north in South America up into this area of the Amazon. So you get these actually cold spells. And so with the influence of the Andes and the glaciers and the cool winds there and the cool breezes growing up from the south, uh, it's almost sort of a temperate kind of rainforest habitat. So that all these factors uh, and the geological base of the area contribute to the diversity. Hey, Kurt, when I think about these pristine, luscious, vibrant uh, natural corners, I think of my childhood here in the Pacific Northwest when there was oysters and crabs and salmon everywhere, and now you still got the beautiful mm-hmm. bays and islands, but you don't have any of the abundance of wildlife. Are there corners, like you're talking about up at the top of the Amazon, where in spite of the changes in the environment, there's still the intense sort of uh, wildlife and vegetation? There definitely are. You know, there are certainly threats, in in particular because of the Trans-Amazonian Highway from Brazil crossing over the Andes to reach the Pacific Ocean. That's coming in the next year or two, and that's going to pose threats. But even then, and, you know, there will be problems along the roadway primarily, but there's another place in the Amazon that I'm going to, actually, in Brazil, a colleague of mine who set up a lot of these places in the Amazon in Peru that I'm talking about that we go to where there's scarlet macaws protected. He's now gone to Brazil and, and protected an area of the Pantanal, where it's almost guaranteed you'll see Jaguar. Wow. Thank you very much, Kurt. We've got to run, but I always Thank appreciate you, you um, contributing your, your take on things. Kurt Kutai from Wildland Adventures. Thank you. We've been speaking with Lauren Sherman. She's written an article called World's Hardest to Reach Vacations. Lauren, we can find this at Forbes.com if we want to read the article. Is that right? Yes. All right. Now, when you think about all these places, people spend a lot of time and a lot of money to get there. You mentioned the thrill is uh, also in the journey. What exactly did you mean about that? Well... Rick, it's all about self-exploration. You're traveling to these places. It may take eight days. It may take three weeks. But while you're going there, that's when you really learn about yourself. And if you learn about yourself, it really is worth the time and the money. Exactly. Lauren German from Forbes magazine, thanks a lot for joining us. Happy travels. Thank you for having me. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section of our website. That's where you can look up information on today's program, listen again to our audio archives, and find links to podcast features. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show, or add your comments in our ongoing message boards. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in Manhattan and at WUNC's studio in Durham, North Carolina, for their engineering help today. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. On Rick's website, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To prepare for your next European experience, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.